Greetings from week three of quarantine. Welcome to Pound the Rock. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I am joined remotely by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. What's up? Not too much, man. We're, you know, sequestered in our homes. It's been three weeks since the NBA season was suspended. Obviously, You said, a, you said three years, right? Uh, it you feels said three like, weeks, but I'm just saying it feels like three years. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And I don't know. I mean, these are obviously extremely strange and extremely frightening times. I, I don't feel like we can really say it enough. It feels strange to be just talking about basketball during these times. And like, honestly, it gets to the point where it starts to feel irrelevant. But here we are, ready to talk basketball once again. And I wanted to start with maybe just a conversation about, um, you know, what the league, I guess, is projecting about where this is headed, because obviously there's been a lot of reluctance on the part of, you know, whether it's the owners, Mark Cuban coming out and saying that he thinks the season is going to restart in late May, which he's since walked back. Um, Adam Silver projecting confidence about the possibility of resuming the season. And most recently, there was a report from Woj that the league had been discussing this proposal for wrapping the season up by doing, a, you know, a sort of neutral site tournament, I guess, or just, you know, a neutral site finish to the regular season. One of the, the ideas apparently that was discussed was doing so at like a casino resort in Las Vegas, where all the players would essentially be quarantined there. There would be testing throughout to make sure that they were all healthy and they would play the games in like a ballroom that would be turned into a basketball court. And the games would be played there, you know, with essential personnel and no fans. I don't know really how I feel about this. It just doesn't seem particularly likely to me. It doesn't seem like a particularly good idea, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I just think there is so much risk involved, and I don't know how you really make it safe for the players and, you know, how how you could uh, know for sure that nobody is going to get sick. And... um, I mean, I I hope that I am wrong about this. I just have become pretty pessimistic that we're going to see a conclusion to the 2019-20 season. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think, you know, I I think it's understandable that the league is kind of leaving no stone unturned in their quest to find a solution so that they can have a conclusion to the season because so much of the season had already been played, um, you know, from a strictly financial standpoint. Obviously, they're going, them and the players, you know, the owners and the players, and frankly, anyone associated with the NBA, it's in their best interest for the season to continue at some point. Having said that, I just think it's such a logistical nightmare. You know, even in this reported proposal, just think of the the hoops they'd have to jump through and all the logistics of having to pull this off. Like, you'd, you'd essentially have to have the 30 teams, if they, I think the report said that they would play about five to seven games to finish out the regular season before the playoffs. So that means all 30 teams would still be involved. So you'd have to get all 30 teams to one resort in Vegas. Anyone associated with those teams, or at least anyone associated with, you know, the conclusion of the game. So the players, the coaching staff, the training staffs, I'm assuming a couple broadcasters, at least people related to pulling the broadcast off. All those people would have to, test negative for all 30 teams plus league executives 
they'd all have to be put into one resort for God knows how long, plus the playoffs. Like, would they be on strict quarantine orders for the entirety of the time their team is still alive? Like, there are just so many questions that go into it. And, and again, just it seems to me like such a logistical nightmare. And that's even assuming that, you know, we can even get to a point where every single person involved with pulling this off for all 30 teams would test negative and or be symptom free. And then what happens if someone just genuinely gets sick during that time and it's not related to COVID, but for a while they're displaying symptoms and they have to get tested and then they're waiting for testing. You know, does the rest of the league shut down again in that resort while they're waiting? Like it just, I completely understand why the league would be jumping through hoops to get this thing completed. But it just feels like the more we think about it, the more we look at the statistics and the, frankly, sobering and depressing numbers coming out about the projections for the U.S. especially, it just, to me, does not seem feasible at all. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's before even talking about like whether the players would be willing to do that. I know a lot of them would certainly love to finish the season. Uh, I think the idea of not finishing something that you started, especially for the teams that were really in the championship hunt, would be a tough pill to swallow. But I don't know that they would be on board for the idea of putting themselves in that kind of situation where presumably, like, are they going to be there with their families or are they going to be quarantined from their families? Like, I just, I mean, the league is probably just going to drag this out for as long as they can. Like, I don't think they're going to throw in the towel and announce anything about the season being canceled until, like, they absolutely have to, until it's 100% clear that they're not going to be able to do so. So we'll probably continue to hear stuff like this and ideas being thrown around and they'll continue to try and find creative solutions, as they should. But I, I just for all the reasons that you mentioned, it, it just seems like it's going to be a real logistical boondoggle. And obviously, I mean, one of the big considerations here is revenue and like TV revenue specifically. And we don't really know what is going to happen with the league's broadcast partners and whether they're going to have to restructure their deal you know, beyond just sort of gate revenue that's being lost here, the potential lost TV revenue uh, is going to be significant as well. And uh, there's a lot, you know, that's going to be determined here that is going to have to be negotiated, you know, not just between the league and its broadcast partners, but between the league and the players union regarding what happens to the cap next year and what happens to this current league year, whether that gets extended beyond, you know, July 1st and whether, players who are set to become free agents on that day uh, are going to remain under contract as the league continues to try and find a solution and a way to finish out this season. Like there is so much that's up in the air right now. And obviously I, I am hopeful that like a solution can be found, not just for the sake of the NBA, but because I feel like that would mean that North America has sort of gotten this virus somewhat under control. Uh, but just given the way things are trending right now, that doesn't seem entirely likely. Um, I, earlier this week, we actually did a, uh, an Instagram live with Austin Rivers through the scores Instagram account. And he said on that Instagram live that he had been hearing that one of the options to, to get everything done in a condensed way is to make the first round a best of three. I mean, yeah, that, like that, if, if they manage to start things up again, it would have to be stuff like that, where you're condensing the schedule uh, you're, you're doing a kind of reduced playoff format. And that's another thing I've been thinking is like, even if they manage to have some sort of a conclusion to this season, I don't know that it's going to feel satisfying for a lot of people. It's going to be completely different 
than any sort of postseason that we would have seen before. No fans in the building. It's not going to feel anything like uh, a typical you know, NBA postseason or NBA championship. And I don't think, you know, that that's not a reason not to do it if you have the opportunity to do it. But it's just one way or another, I don't think we're getting the kind of satisfying conclusion of this season that a few weeks ago, it seemed like we were going to. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So that's where we're at with that. And in the meantime, uh, we're still churning out content on the Score app. And one piece that you've got going up today, Cash, is a piece in a series called Commissioner for a Day, where you laid out a few of your ideas for how to improve the league. And that's something I think a lot of people have talked about in the midst of all this, is like, how are we going to come out of this? And how is the NBA going to come out of this? What's it going to look like? And what sort of changes might be in place? So you took that opportunity to reflect on how you might change the league if you had the opportunity to do so. So I wanted to ask you about about the points you made in that article, starting with this idea of having a 58-game regular season with essentially every team playing every other team twice, uh, eliminating conferences, and then just you know going into the playoffs with the top 16 teams. Talk me through that idea. Yeah, that would be, I mean... The whole point of the series, like you said, is commissioner for a day. Well, if I was commissioner for a day, this would be this has always been kind of my like dream scenario for how I think the NBA could put forth its best product. And off the bat, I'll say like I'm well aware of the financial ramifications that would come from this, and that would result from trimming nearly a third of the season, which is why you know I don't think this idea will ever see the light of day. But in an idealistic world where we didn't have to worry about that and we could just say how does the best product get put on the floor, I think this is it. 58-game season, every team plays each other twice, once home, once away, no divisions, no conferences, top 16 at the end, qualify in a 1-16 to format. Um, the way I had laid it out is, like right now, players report to camp in late September, early October for like a mid to late October season start. Uh, the way I laid this out is, basically, players could report in the first week of November, Training camp and the preseason can take them to Thanksgiving. Every The league gets to take Thanksgiving weekend off. And then the the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, the season could start. So like this season, for example, would have started on December 3rd. It still goes into mid-April. Um, so you have the, you know, about a month and a half less to play 24 fewer games. I, I even did the math. It works out to like one game for each team every 2.4 days. You can basically eliminate back-to-backs in this scenario. So you're looking at less games, which means every game is more meaningful. Every matchup is more meaningful because, you know, uh, you look at some quote-unquote division rivals right now, like LA, LA. If you know that's only happening twice, you know, if LeBron and Kawhi are only playing each other twice, if it's only, you know, maybe that's a bad example because they both play in the same arena. But, you know, LeBron, Curry, you know, Lakers, Warriors, they can play up to four, three or four times a year because they're in the same conference, not same division. Well, if it's only twice and you know for a damn fact, you know, LeBron's Lakers are only coming to your market once, the value of that ticket goes like, I just, I feel like this is the way that every matchup gets magnified. Every night on the NBA schedule gets magnified because there are less games on every night and fans can actually consume more of them. No back-to-backs and a, you know, shorter schedule in general means players are fresher. Um, you probably won't see players resting much, if at all, in this scenario. There's just so many reasons why I've always thought this would be the way to get the best product out there. Um, and again, even just the, the 
how hard even the good teams will go in the regular season. If you only got 58 games to make your point in the standings and position yourself for the postseason, you know, I think even just the, you know, what they what coaches will call the give a shit meter in the regular season will go way up. Another thing I said uh, in this post is if you're going to shorten the season that much, it doesn't make sense to have the playoffs as long. So you go back to a best of five in the first round. You know, I think it's still long enough that the best team should win, but it's short enough that maybe you're a little more open to upsets that you are than you currently are in the best of seven format. So even the first round becomes a little more watchable. I just think this, again, in a dream scenario where you didn't have to worry maybe about the financial ramifications of losing this many games, or say if you were just starting from scratch and you didn't even know an 82-game schedule ever existed, I think this would be the best way to get the most out of an NBA regular season. Do you think that there is a way where you're playing 58 games and you can somehow make up the revenue for the 24 games that you've been slashing? I mean, I guess there's there's two ways that that would be accomplishable. The first one would be if the product is as great as I think it is and if ratings were to skyrocket because there are fewer games to actually watch, maybe in some idealistic world, the networks still pay the same amount. <laughs> Um, for those games that they did in the assumption of an 82-game schedule. And then from a box office perspective, again, maybe the fact that, you know, there's 12 less home games to pick from and the the superstar matchups, you know, are only happening once per season, whatever it is, maybe that means the value of those tickets greatly increases and, you know, teams can gouge fans that way a little more. Like, to be honest, I don't think there is a way that you can get to the same number financially, but I think there are ways you can make up some of the difference for sure. Yeah, I mean, the NFL has a 16-game season, and they manage to pull in a shit ton of revenue exactly. every year. So there's something to be said for you reduce the schedule and every game means a little bit more. And I think to your point, like, yeah, you probably could jack up the price of tickets if you knew that the hometown fans were only going to get one opportunity to see, say, LeBron James come through town uh, per season. So uh, there's something to that. And then, I don't know, you didn't uh, mention this in the piece, but maybe you make up for some of that revenue with something like a play-in tournament at the end of the year where like the, the 7 through 10 seeds are fighting for a final playoff spot or there's a mid-season tournament or something to that effect where you're finding creative ways to, uh, to generate revenue that make up for the lost time. I just think, and I know you said, you know, this isn't, we're not necessarily striving for realism here, yeah. but obviously, you know, we've been advocating, I think for a shortened season for a while now. And the big roadblock to that is whether anyone would be on board with it, you know, the owners or the players. And even if ultimately this would be better for the players and their bodies and would keep them fresher for the playoffs and would probably make the product better, I just don't know that you could get enough people on board with it to, to ever push it through. Yeah, I agree with that. The one thing I didn't mention as well is just the way this kind of affects the overall NBA calendar. Like the All-Star break would actually then be the halfway point of the season. You know, right now, All-Star voting usually starts on Christmas. So if the season started in the last week of November, first week of December, you're still almost getting a month of games before voting starts. You could even push the voting into like early January. And, and go in with a little more than a month of games under everyone's belt before voting started um, and still have a pretty good sample, have voting throughout January. And again, then the All-Star break would actually be the midway point. 
The only difference is it's a longer off season, right? So, you know, if everything, usually free agency and all that's wrapped up by late July, August at the latest, you know, I, imagine the difference it makes if players now know they don't have to report until, you know, the first week of November as opposed to the last week of September. I, I'd bet a lot more players feel better about representing their countries in the summer in various tournaments if they know there's that longer buffer period between the summer and uh, the next season starts. I just think there are so many ways where the NBA calendar um, gets improved, every game gets magnified, and the product is just better overall. Do you think that we would still see like star players resting or load management? Like, would they would players and teams ultimately just like adapt to this fifty eight game schedule by saying, "All right, well, if the ideal was for you know star players to play like eighty five percent of the regular season before in order to have them in the best possible shape for the playoffs, would they just apply that same approach to a fifty eight game season?" Or I don't think so because I think a lot of the in terms of the amount of minutes and games star players should be playing to be ready for the playoffs, I think a lot of times that is based on a number. Right, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily that it's eighty-five percent of a season in general. It's usually a specific number that the training staff has in mind. So, if it's a fifty-eight game schedule, which I'm—I don't remember when it was. I remember last year when we, were, when you know, we were reading so much about Kawhi. I can't remember who had written a story where they quoted someone saying that, like, in and around sixty games would actually be the sweet spot for, you know, making sure players are playing a lot but also still healthy by the time April rolls around. Like this is this is that. It's a fifty eight game schedule. Again, the way that it would be spaced out, there'd virtually be no back to backs, maybe a few for every team. So I just don't think there would be as much reason, if any reason, for players to need to load manage and rest. Now obviously if there's like a nagging injury and maybe they want to play one game that week instead of three, whatever. But I think for the most part this would all but eliminate healthy players resting. I don't know. I, I can kind of like I, I think about that conceptually, and it makes sense. Uh, I just wonder if at a certain point in time, like everybody's always looking for an edge, right? Yeah. And at a certain point, is a team looking for an edge by saying, "Okay, well, everybody else is playing fifty-eight games. Like we're going to take it a little bit easier in the regular season and play our best guys like forty-eight games." But man, in and, a, but think about it this way: in a in a fifty-eight game season, right? When it's when every game is magnified because of how few games you have, right, to to position yourself in the standings. Something like that, like one of your star players taking 10 games off could drastically alter where you finish in the standings. Well, I mean, if 10 games out of 58 is sort of, you know, the same as... If that's about I don't have seven, a calculator in front like of me. That would be 17 same, games, 16, 17 games in a regular right, season. Right. So if you can get by, you know, playing... Kawhi say 65 games in a regular season now then you would theoretically be able to get by by playing him 48 out of a 58 game season as well Um, anyway obviously this is all highly speculative but another question I had about that like you were mentioning shortening the first round and like I, I was a big fan of best of five as well and I would have no issue with that being brought back but I do sort of always go back and forth in my head with this question which is like, are upsets early in the playoffs a good thing? Like, obviously, they're extremely exciting when they happen. But I also feel like there's like a deadening effect when the best teams get knocked out early on and you get deeper into the playoffs and the most important series are being contested by inferior teams as a result. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know, where do you land on that? Like, are you in favor of early round upsets? Or would you prefer to just have the best teams playing each other late in the postseason? I would definitely prefer for the best teams to play each other later in the postseason. But, and that's why, you know, like a one game doesn't make sense to be in a sport like basketball. Even a best of three that Rivers had mentioned, I think, is, is really dicey because, you know... Heck, the Magic could just have the best shooting night of their lives and all of a sudden have the Bucks on the edge of elimination because of one game. Like, So one game, best of three, I completely agree with you. I think it would deaden the effect of upsets and, and kind of make, uh, make a mockery of it in a way. But I still think best of five, again, is long enough where the best team should win. Like, If the number one seed loses a best of five... I, yeah, it's a little flukier than had they lost the best of seven, but that's still on them. Like they, they had a five-game series where they just needed to win three against a team they're supposedly better than. They should have taken care of business. I, I think the best of five is is the best of both worlds in where um, you get the tease of an upset a little more. It's definitely more possible, but you still know that the best team should win. And I think in a best of seven series, like a team like um, an Orlando or Brooklyn this year is never even sniffing troubling the Bucks, right? Even if they win game one, you're like, well, they still got to beat them three more times in the next six. It's not happening. One of those teams wins a game one in a best of five. Now, all of a sudden, that game two is a hell of a lot more watchable than it would ever could be in a game seven, you know? Or or the game three when it's 1-1, obviously, is a lot more watchable and compelling. So I don't even think it's necessarily about making it so that upsets are happening often. I just think it's about making it seem a little more possible, making it a better and more compelling product for TV. And then, yeah, maybe instead of getting one, like one of these upsets, I don't even know the numbers. I'm just going to throw it out there. But like, imagine if it was right now, you get it once every eight to 10 years. Maybe you get it once every four or five years instead, or five or six years. I think it, it's, it would still be rare enough to be meaningful, but maybe just not as rare it is, as it is right now. I, I agree. Like if you are, you know, a number one or a number two seed and, and you can't close out a seven or eight in a best of five, then you probably deserve to lose. And I think uh, I would be fine with that. Uh, The other proposal in your piece for how to improve the league was you want to, you want to see the Elam ending applied to all regular season overtime. Uh, Obviously that worked to great effect in the all-star game. Everybody seemed to love it. And I think, you know, for the most part, regular season overtime can be a bit of a drag. It doesn't really carry the kind of excitement a lot of time that you think it ought to. So I think this is a great idea. I'm not convinced that they shouldn't apply that to playoff overtime as well. Uh, like the the prospect of any playoff overtime game featuring like a walk-off shot of some kind, I feel like just offers so much possibility for excitement. Talk to me about why why you felt it important to put this in your piece and, and be one of the things that you proposed. Well, I think um, like the, the theme of my Commission Day pieces, and again, there are, every every sport on our app is doing them, so I encourage everyone to check out uh, each different sports Commission for a Day piece. And they all kind of have themes. So the theme for mine was making the most out of and making the most compelling regular season right and and i think the nba regular season is great as it is right now and there's great moments every night but how how you can build a regular season where every single night just means more and matters and the elam ending in overtime like it it was scoffed at when it was first announced that this is what was going to happen at the all-star game and what 30 seconds into it people fell in love with it (laughs) 
because the intensity of every possession and the attention to detail on every possession was incredible to watch. It was a treat. And even though, like, theoretically, yeah, that should be the case when teams know they only have five minutes to outscore each other, there's something about putting that target score up there and them knowing that they have that number in their heads that they need to get to and prevent the other team from getting to that just seems to lend itself to more intense and more compelling basketball. And I think if if you made that the case, again, in this make-believe regular season where there's only 58 games and every game matters so much, I just think overtime basketball would reach a level that we can't even comprehend right now because we are so used to this kind of drag of regular season overtime as it is right now. Another thing I said in my piece, you know, it would be, so it'd be a target score of 10 and each team would only get one timeout. Right now they play a five minute period where both team gets, both teams get two timeouts. So, you know, four timeouts in a five minute mini game when you've already played 48 minutes, it, it to me, it kind of deadens the action a lot of times. And yeah, once in a while, you'll get a great overtime moment or whatever the case may be. But I think for the most part, overtime can be a bit of a drag, especially if you're talking about bad teams. And I feel like the, the Elam ending and, you know, you can change the target score if you want. But I, I just think it would make it so much more watchable. I think like the biggest thing is probably just eliminating like the intentional fouling at the end of games. Yep that can really drag it out. Even when it's like a six-point game and there's under a minute left and guys are still sending the opposing team to the free-throw line and you're just really, really dragging it out. I think with the target score, when there isn't a timer, like you totally eliminate that stuff. And maybe like if a team's trying to play catch-up and there's a bad free-throw shooter on the floor, you still see... Uh, guys getting hacked, but I feel like there are some rule changes where you could legislate that out. And I think that would be the biggest benefit is just cut it out with like the end of game intentional fouling that just makes these games drag on forever. Uh, And instead you just have teams like if they're up against it, if they're desperate, if they're one possession away from potentially losing the game, like they, their only option really is to ramp up the intensity at the defensive end and try like hell to get a stop. I think that's, way preferable to them just hoping that they can you know claw their way back by fouling the other team and the other team misses enough free throws and they make enough threes at the other end to get back which works you know like a fraction of the time yep i feel like doing away with that would improve the viewing experience considerably so why why do you think that they shouldn't apply that to the playoffs though to be honest it's not even so much that i don't think they should apply it to the playoffs it's just that I, I'd be okay if they did it. And, and there, I kind of see it like, you know, the the way the NHL does regular season overtime compared to the postseason. Now, I hate the shootout. I think going from three-on-three hockey, um, three-on-three sudden-death hockey to a shootout is like the biggest come down probably in pro sports right now. But I do like the fact that in the regular season, they have this kind of super fast-paced, exciting finish with the three-on-three sudden-death. And then in the playoffs, they go back to five-on-five over time, and it's 20-minute periods, and, you know, it can go on forever. I kind of like the idea that in the playoffs, we can still have those rare, like, double, triple overtime thrillers, you know? Um, so uh, before the, the season was actually suspended, the idea of talking to players about how they feel about an Elam ending overtime in games that actually matter is, is something I wanted to do for a feature, and I talked to only a couple players at the time, but... 
uh, Devin Booker was one of the guys I talked to, and he said the reason he doesn't think players would want the Elam ending in the regular season is because it's, he thinks it's actually more exhausting to play that like balls to the wall kind of that hard in the Elam ending setting than it would be to even play like a double overtime or a triple overtime game, which I thought was interesting. And he was saying it's just to play that hard after a, a game of 48 minutes when you might have a back-to-back or three games in four nights in this 82-game season is just such a grind. Well, again, in this 58-game season, there's no back-to-backs. That wouldn't really be an issue. But I kind of like the idea of that grind in the playoffs, if that makes sense. You know, you think back to that game three between the Raptors and Bucks, and I'm sure it was absolutely exhausting to play in and took a toll on those players' bodies. And yeah, even to watch it, it was like emotionally exhausting. But I do think in the playoffs, that kind of still belongs in a way. Like, I, I don't know if you kind of get what I'm saying, but I kind of like that idea of like teams grueling and grinding through a long postseason to get to the ultimate goal. And maybe that did include a triple overtime game or something at some point. Um, so it, it's not even so much that I don't, I, I wouldn't want it, Anil ending in the playoffs. It's just that I'd be more accepting of regular overtime in the playoffs. Whereas in the regular season, I just think they should get to an Elam ending ASAP. I agree with you on one point for sure, which is that I think it's cool when there are slightly different rules in the playoffs, like something that tangibly makes the game different. Mm -hmm. And I think like the point about hockey is well taken. The fact that they have like the continuous overtime, you know, 20 minute periods of five on five in the playoffs, I do think makes it somewhat special. So I do on one hand sort of like the idea of, of having that be like a little bit different in the playoffs, something that makes it uh, like that distinguishes it from the regular season. What's up pound the rock listeners. Just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to pound the rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the scores, other sports podcasts for major league baseball. There's expand the zone for soccer. We've got sweeper keeper puck pursuit has you covered for the NHL The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. I think those are great ideas. Uh, I did. There was one I wanted to talk about, which I know you've mentioned to me off air that didn't end up making it into the piece, but I thought was, I just find this to be a fascinating discussion in general. You mentioned that you thought it would be a good idea to eliminate the individual max salary while maintaining the salary cap structure. And I think we sort of disagree on this a little bit, but I wanted to hear you make your case for that rule change and potentially have a conversation about that. Yeah, so like you said, it didn't make it into the actual piece because it didn't really fit the theme of like making the regular season more meaningful or whatever. But like I mentioned, the 58-game season is something I've always just wanted to see, you know, what it would look like in the product and everything. I, the idea of a max, uh, a cap but without player maxes is the same idea for me. It's something I've just always been really fascinated to see what the league would look like because imagine a scenario where bad team in a non-glamour market has a boatload of cap space and 
someone like a LeBron or a Giannis or a Kawhi is a free agent, and they can make some stupid amount, like throw your number out there, 40, 50, 60, well, 40 is already doable under the current cap, but yeah, 50, 60, 70 million a year. And it probably means they're giving up the chance to really compete for a title, but, you know, if they're confident enough in themselves, as they all are, they probably think they can still lead a winner. And the, But the thing is, they'd have to sacrifice playing with another star. Their team would probably only be able to sign, you know, vet minimums the rest of the way. I just think it would make for a very fascinating team-building experiment. And I also think it would make sure that players get what they're worth, right? The idea of max contracts suppresses the potential for the true max players to actually get their due because, you know, in the current climate, a max player is just a player that Team X maybe believes is the best they can get, right? So if you're in a glamour market, yeah, the best players are those guys. Or if you draft that guy, good for you. But it, other than that, if you're Charlotte and you haven't drafted that level of player, you can pretty much be certain you're never getting that player unless you trade for him. But I think this is the way to kind of level the playing field in that respect because, again, there would still be a cap to work with. It's not like the, the richest teams can just blow through the cap. They still all have the same cap. It's just that the... The amount they could play, pay each individual player wouldn't have a, uh, a regular max. Yeah, so my issue with this is you just kind of decimate the league's middle class, right? Like, those are the people who suffer the most. And, I mean, you're saying this pays the players what they're worth, and maybe that's right. Maybe, you know, the guys who are getting mid-level salaries right now you know, don't deserve to be making as much as they are, at least, you know, relative to what the best players in the league are making. And you're right, like the max puts an artificial cap on what those players can earn. And if you eliminate it, absolutely, there's a scenario in which LeBron James could be making $70 million a year. Uh, For one thing, I don't know if that is like good for the NBA product. Obviously, it's like, that's your best bet. If you really want to achieve parity in the league, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, because you essentially eliminate star clustering unless, you know, LeBron winds up on a team or Kawhi or Superstar X winds up on a team where they also happen to, like, draft a superstar. And then presumably if it's still a soft cap, uh, you can, you know, blow through the cap to retain that guy after his rookie deal, and that's how you build a dominant team. But... Ultimately, I think this levels the playing field and you're not going to have big threes or teams with multiple superstars on them. So um, I guess that's a good thing. I mean, if if you're looking out for like the Charlotte Hornets, say, like that certainly makes it easier for them to sell hope to their fan base. But I don't know. I mean, like super teams are also part of what make the league fun. And I think a lot of the time, even though people will complain about it while it's happening. I think on the whole, like for the league to be top heavy tends to be a good thing, I think. Um, But the other thing is just like, I don't know how, like you would essentially create something of a civil war, I think in the player ranks, because for, for the guys in the middle, uh, you know, for the NBA proletariat, uh, this would, this would be really tough sledding. And I think 
you know, there are a couple ways to look at it. Like on the one hand, you can say right now, the superstars are kind of subsidizing that middle class because they are what drives interest, I think, in the league more than anything. You know, fans typically don't flock to stadiums to watch Danny Green hit stationary threes and play defense. So, you know, that's, I guess, something that, like, if you were a superstar player, like, you would have legitimate cause to complain about. But I just think you would sow a lot of division in the player ranks by instituting that policy that made it a lot more difficult for the guys in the middle to to make money. Well, I'll say this. One, I, I like super teams. The super teams are good for the league. That's been um, pretty apparent the last number of decades. I actually think there would still inevitably be super teams, and there's still a path to super teams, and you mentioned it. It's just that it, in this scenario, the teams that would be rewarded are the teams that draft really well and build good young cores because you could end up in a situation where then the best players in the league and the top free agents – could make the most amount of money by joining teams that have, you know, maybe a bundle of players on rookie scales or cheap deals, like in their first deals, but that are good players, right? So you mentioned like a LeBron Doncic potential pairing. Like, I, I still think inevitably stars would cluster, but I think it would be in a way that actually rewards the teams that build themselves properly and draft well. And I think that is kind of exciting as opposed to just clustering on the teams that, You know, like the Lakers are a perfect example. The Lakers kind of shot themselves in the foot for a number of years and didn't build well and were the poster child for chaos in the West. You know, they're obviously not at the level the Knicks are, but they were kind of becoming Knicks West in a way, and they just were not running themselves well. And they got to where they are now simply because LeBron wanted to play there, um, which all the power to him, and we get it. It's LA, and it's the league's marquee franchise, but... You know, then Anthony Davis wants to be there, and so they trade for him. Like in in this scenario that I'm proposing, I don't think that happens, right? Because sure, they might have been able to give you know LeBron money, but if they had given him what he was truly worth, then they're probably not able to just randomly trade for Anthony Davis a year later, right? They they would have to build properly through the draft and do things like that. So I just think I think the way this would work is that super teams still exist. There'd still be some powerful teams out there. It would just be the teams that have done it right and then in terms of kind of squeezing out the middle look i just think that in most businesses that's how it works right like it, the the best products the best people the best talent gets for the most part you know obviously it doesn't always work this way we know things aren't always fair like but for the most part you would hope that those are the people that get rewarded the best the most sorry and if that means that you know, there's a handful of players making $60 million and some players that are currently making 14 make 9 instead or whatever the case may be. Like, I still – I think everything would adapt and there would still be a middle tier making what they're worth in that world. It just wouldn't be what it is now. You know, it's not – I don't think it would be like only max – or only 50, 60, $70 million guys and only $5 million and less. I do think a middle ground would kind of – construct itself just at a lesser level than it's at now and i think that's fair because i think in terms of the impact especially once you get to the postseason which we know in terms of the impact of the true max guys i think as important as those mid guys are over the grind of a long season i think when it really comes down to it their impact is a little closer to the low level guys than it ever could be to the true max guys 
I do wonder sort of what the breaking point would be. Like just as an experiment, I would be really curious to see like how high would teams be willing to go to sign a superstar player and like, you know, what would be the threshold beyond which it became impossible to actually put a championship team around that guy? Like how much salary would you realistically have left over uh, or be able to have left over that would allow you to like actually put a competent team around that player? Like, I think, I just think that would be fascinating. And I think it'd also be fascinating. Like if you take a player like LeBron who is making so much money off of the court, uh, in endorsement, his lifetime deal with Nike, you know, the money that he's already made in his career, like how much is he willing to sacrifice in order to play with another star? You know, like if the Hornets were to offer him like $75 million a year, does he pass that up to take, you know, $40 million to play with Anthony Davis in Los Angeles? I think it's a fascinating question. Um, but ultimately, I just think like it would be too complicated and too divisive. Um, and maybe like, again, like you mentioned, we're just starting from scratch here. So maybe if we were starting from scratch, it wouldn't be an issue. It wouldn't be divisive because there wouldn't be this expectation of what the league's middle class was going to make. But I don't know. It just, I, I feel like, like the way that things are structured now the, the superstars, like their way of sort of tilting the scales, I guess, back in their favor is like the, the superstar empowerment era that we've seen take shape. And I think when people complain about that, that's maybe the thing that they miss is like what the, you know, the superstars are essentially conceding something with this idea of the max salary. Yep. And and their way of taking power back for themselves is to use their leverage as like the best players in the league. And ultimately a lot of like, like the people that suffer for that are, I, I'll call them like NBA second class citizens, essentially <laughs> like the other players who wind up being pawns in like the superstars game of multidimensional chess. Like they have their lives uprooted and have to get traded elsewhere through no choice of their own because like a superstar somewhere else decided that they, wanted to be traded or LeBron decided that he wanted all of his teammates to be traded for Anthony Davis. Like the guys who don't really have a say in the matter are the second and third and fourth tier guys. And, and there's a sense of like balance there, I think where, like I was saying before, like the superstars kind of subsidize that middle class in a way and the max salary allows that to happen. And I think, you know, those superstars exerting their leverage and putting their thumb back on the scale is a way of kind of evening that out. 100%. I, I think uh, I think that was well said, and I think that's exactly uh, what would happen. I think, to your point, yeah, it would be very, I think, complicated to institute given what, what the NBA salary cap already is, and this would, I guess, have to be more of a starting from scratch thing. Uh, but I do think it's fascinating to think about, and I also think, you know, I don't know if it's any more complicated than uh, trying to quarantine 30 teams and everyone with them in the middle of a global pandemic. But, you know, I think I think there's a possibility it could be done. I think, and realistically, out of the three, you know, grand ideas that we talked about that I had, um, the only one that I could actually see happening is the Elam ending. I actually wouldn't be surprised at all if that happens in the next 
couple of years, but I know um, I think you're going to have a piece go up on the weekend with your commission for a day ideas or idea. Um, you know, maybe maybe you don't have to go into detail about it if you don't want to spoil the post, but can you give us a hint or just give us the, the idea in general for what you're going to write about for the commission for a day series? Yeah, I mean, it's super simple. I just think that they should move the three-point line back. And wow. I'm not the, the first person to have kind of proposed that idea. I think Kirk Goldsberry uh, has written about it at length. But I just think... I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that like the league has become too stylistically homogenous. I think the issue is essentially every team's goals have become sort of similar and, and having like a homogeneity of intention is not the same as a homogeneity of style. Like I think every team essentially goes about uh, trying to reach those objectives. Uh, and by those objectives, I'm talking about like their shot profile and, and the kind of shot specifically that they're looking to get. Every team sort of goes about that in a different way. And I think there is actually still a, you know, a decent amount of stylistic diversity in the league. But I think to introduce a little bit more tactical uh, diversity, at least offensively, would be a good thing. And I think, you know, sliding the the three-point line back, say, like two or three feet and making it so that maybe it's not as obvious that that is a a more mathematically efficient shot than taking like an 18-foot jumper. I think could introduce like a lot of interesting wrinkles into the league. And I think, you know, right now, one of my, I wouldn't call it necessarily a problem or an issue with, with the league and its gameplay, but like it does bug me sometimes that players who are specialists who have that one particular skill, like three-point shooting, can be considerably more valuable in today's league than guys who are better at almost everything else but don't necessarily have three-point shooting skills I feel like that's a problem and I and I feel like it sort of deadens our appreciation for the more nuanced softer skills that those players you know can sometimes exhibit like the all-around basketball skills yeah exactly like footwork and being able to kind of get a shot off in traffic and interior passing and things like that that I feel like would be amplified if we started to reduce the overall number of three-point attempts. And I think, you know, like, let's say you move the arc back. I think it's, like, at the above the break, it's, like, 23.75 feet away from the basket now, and in the corners, it's 22 feet. And and that's, like, the, the, the corner thing is another... Uh, you'd have to figure out what you... Like, I was going to ask essentially you, would, would we're you gonna, get like, rid of corners? Corner trees? Uh, I, I don't really have a personal preference. Like, one, you could widen the court... Um, or you could eliminate the corner three-pointers altogether. And I think both are sort of fascinating options. But um, like the, my point is there would still be guys who would be excellent three-point shooters if the arc was like 26 or 27 feet away. Steph Curry, I'm pretty sure, still shoots like over 40% from like 28 feet and beyond. So that skill would still be incredibly valuable. And while it would make it easier for defenses to like ignore certain shooters out there because they would, you know, be, you know, guys who are like 37% three point shooters now might be like 32 or 33% shooters. I also think like the players who were threats from like 27 feet and beyond 
would still improve spacing to the point that like the game wouldn't get too mucked up in the middle of the floor. No, I agree with that 100%. I also think that, you know, you mentioned like a guy like Steph, you know, would still be a good, there would still be good three-point shooters out there. I think if anything, I think the appreciation for those guys would go up while the appreciation for the all-around basketball players who maybe can't shoot right now would also go up. Like I think, I think this would actually almost highlight every player's skill even more than is currently done right now, whether they are a shooter or not, right? And, and the only guys that would, I guess, maybe be negatively affected by this are the guys that are kind of like just good enough as three-point shooters and, and have just enough range to be like respectable three-point shooters and aren't necessarily very good at anything else, you know? And it's kind of like that's what's keeping them on the floor and they're just like okay at everything else. Uh, maybe those guys would be negatively affected, but again, I think players that are really well-rounded other than shooting would be much more appreciated in your NBA. And I think the true, truly elite shooters would also be because they'd still be making it rain from this further distance. And I think, too, an interesting thing to note, because I'm sure there's a lot of people when they hear of things like moving the three-point line back or a 58-game season, you know, um, ideal world or even you know people that are even more radical and want a four-point line which I don't necessarily agree with but whatever I, I think it's important to note as well that if you're sitting there right now like scoffing at and or rolling your eyes at the idea of something like moving the three-point line back or the idea of a 58 game season or in a more radical um, environment which I don't necessarily agree with but whatever if that's how you know you think the more radical idea of adding a four-point line I get that there are purists and traditionalists out there that will, you know, ball their fists up in the air and, and, you know, scream all the humanity. But I think what people need to remember is that basketball and sports in general always evolve and always have evolved. And that there was a time not even that long ago, you know, 1978 uh, or 79, 80, I believe, was the first season of three point line. Like only about 40 years ago, the league decided, okay, we're going to add a new line on the floor and shooting behind that now results in an extra point that never existed before in the history of our league. And again, that only happened about 40 years ago. And we've just all come to accept that this is the game now. So I think anyone that, you know, believes radical changes to a sport or a radical addition or a rule change is just absolutely off the table or would ruin the sanctity of the game, or the purity of the game or anything like that, <clears throat> doesn't quite understand how the game and sports in general have evolved over history. Yeah, not to mention the fact that, like, in the mid-90s, they moved a three-point line in for two seasons and then moved it back <laughs> out. Like, the league has been more than willing to uh, experiment with changes to its court in the past. Great point. And so I think if, the, if they were to do this, I guess I'd be more partial to them widening the court than just doing away with corner threes altogether. Because I do think, like, if you get rid of the corner three, you do really risk the game getting pretty muddy inside. Like, uh, you, I, I think you, you decimate so much spacing by taking away that shot and taking away the threat of a guy in the corner and, you know, a, a defender essentially having to pay attention to that guy rather than just helping at the rim. But for that shot to only be, you know, 22 feet away... I feel like it's become such a sort of tactical inefficiency. So much of 
of NBA offense was geared towards creating those shots that uh, it would force a lot of teams to rethink their offensive playbooks if suddenly that was like a 26-foot shot rather than a 22-footer. And if the court was wider, then I think you, you, you would be able to do that without compromising the kind of free-flowing, open, spaced-out beauty of the game today where guys have open driving lanes and there's a lot of passing and ball movement and, and you wouldn't go back to an era like the early 2000s when offense just couldn't survive at all. Yeah, let's not go back to that era. But <laughs> No, I agree with you. I think um, widening the court in your scenario so that corner three still existed would be important because I think, yeah, if you were to get rid of corner threes altogether, I just think you drastically um, change the way the game is like is played. And yeah, I think it would muddy things up in the middle and I don't think anyone wants to see that again. So uh, there are our ideas for improving the NBA. Something to chew on while no NBA games are played. Uh, another idea, Cash, that I know that you have espoused in the past is essentially eliminating positions from the all-NBA ballots and just picking the 15 best players. We are going to do another episode probably early next week um, great, great in which we will deliver our all-NBA ballots. Unfortunately, they will be bound by positions as the ballots are in the league today. But I think that's going to be our next episode. But also... I think we would love to hear from our listeners during this hiatus and get some feedback and get some ideas from them uh, about any topics they'd love for us to talk about because really at this point in time, we're looking to talk about anything and everything. And I think this is a good opportunity for us to interact with and engage with our audience. So if any of our listeners have anything that they would like to hear us talk about or any questions that they have they want to hear us answer on the pod, uh, feel free to reach out. You can email me at joe.wolfond at thescore.com or cash at joseph.casharo at thescore.com. And I think if we have an opportunity to, uh, over the next little while, we'd love to address that stuff on air. Well said. Even if, uh, obviously, if you guys want to tweet us as well, at joeyw. That's Joey underscore W, actually. Oh, okay, my bad. And uh, at Joseph Casharo, I don't know, like if you, uh, yeah, if you want to get a question in for the next pod, or like Joe said, send a suggestion or any kind of feedback like that. Just hit us up on Twitter and um, hashtag Pound the Rock if you want, so we know that you're talking about the podcast. Email us, but whatever the case may be, just get in touch with us, and hopefully we will continue to be able to provide you with uh, forty-five to sixty minutes out of your week or you can think about basketball again. And lastly, um, just hope that everybody out there is doing okay, staying safe, you know, taking all the right precautions. And, you know, on behalf of Cash and myself, uh, we're both incredibly grateful for all the essential service personnel who are continuing to do their jobs and helping the rest of us get through this. Uh, medical professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, grocery store clerk, uh, delivery people, anybody who is putting their safety on the line to make sure that uh, we all have the essential services that we need during this time. Uh, just a huge thank you from us. And for everybody that is, uh, you know, dealing with the fear and uncertainty, just want to say, hope you're hanging in there. And uh, we hope that in our tiny, tiny way that we're, we're helping you to get through it. Well said. So with that, I'm going to sign off. For Joseph Cacharo, 
I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.